Great to see everybody. Uh, before we start the message today, I just want to give you just a real brief snapshot of kind of where we're going and on Sunday services, kind of topical, what we're going to do. So we're talking about Jesus now, and that's going to last through the month of November. We get to December. What do you think we're going to talk about in December? Anybody? Just a wild guess. Christmas. We're going to talk about Christmas. And then when we hit uh, January, there has been uh, some need and some request for a relationship series where we talk about marriage or we talk about singles issues. It's been a couple years since we've done that. And um, when we did it the time before, I actually held a singles forum and I got together with a bunch of single guys and then separately got together with a bunch of single ladies. And um, it seems like the results were skewed when I got together with the single ladies and people said that, uh, that I needed to have somebody else actually meeting with them besides myself. So I'm going to try to get my wife, Krista, to meet with them because the information that came back was extraordinarily helpful to the series. And so we're going to do a series on marriage and singles and parenting and friendship, and that's going to be in January. And then once we hit March, we're going to talk about stress. We're going to focus on um, how we can deal with stress, and we're going to look at the book of Daniel because Daniel had some very stressful situations. And then we're going to do something during the week while that's going on uh, leading up to Easter, from March leading up to Easter. We did it about two years ago called the Acts Experience, A-C-T-S, like the book of Acts, not Acts, like an Acts Experience. But, you know, in the book of Acts, that was kind of the golden age of the Christian church. And so what we want to do is talk about, well, what did they do? And we want to recreate those simple things they did for just six weeks and experience all, hopefully, that they experienced. So I just want to give you a snapshot of that. Today, we're going to turn and look at the opening verses to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, because Hebrews was written to a group of people, just as background, people living in a big city. And they were facing a lot of the same big city stuff that you and I uh, face often. Uh, It was written to a group of people who were spiritually drifting. They were going backwards in their faith. And living in this big city, we get clues of things that they were dealing with. Uh, In their city, they were dealing with some opposition in this big city. It wasn't kind of the cool thing or the in thing to be a Christian. They were dealing with big city temptations of fast donkeys and fast food and fast women. They were dealing with big city distractions of full calendars bursting at the seams so much to do and so much to see and so many good opportunities and this is what they were dealing with as they were sliding kind of backwards they were dealing with all these packed schedules and temptations and frustrations and the whole big enchilada they were dealing with all of this and so we're told that as they were some interesting things were going on to those whom this book was written to, that some of them stopped going to church, and that says in Hebrews chapter 10, that some of them got a hold of some really bad teaching, and that others were told in Hebrews chapter 5 just didn't want to like spiritually mature. And the writer of Hebrews says it this way, says, you know, you should, at this point, you should have moved on to the meat of the word. Instead, you're just totally content with the milk of the word. So they just had didn't have much of a desire. The book of Hebrews is like the only, it's the only book in the New Testament were clueless who the author was. 2,000 years and the author is completely anonymous. And what is so interesting and fascinating about that is the sole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to lift up Jesus Christ. It's to like say, he is it. He is all and all and all and all. Jesus is everything. And I think it's absolutely fascinating a book whose sole intent and purpose is to do nothing but to lift up Jesus Christ and say, he's it. He is better, which we'll talk about in just a moment, than anything else. 
that the author is completely anonymous, that we don't know who wrote it. I just think that's quite interesting. The book has a couple of major themes. I'm going to mention the three of them to you, and then I'm really going to talk about one of the themes. And that is this, and there's a fill-in if you want to fill in the blanks on the back of your bulletin. But we're encouraged to be encouragers. We're called to be encouragers. So when you're drifting, when you're having an issue of just kind of spiritually just kind of drifting out in the sea, and you're drifting backwards in this case, that um, encourage, encourage other people. So when you're drifting, start lifting basically, is what's being said here. The other thing is to live in expectation, and I've lifted some verses about that. There's a real expectancy that exists in the book of Hebrews. And then finally, the major predominant theme in this book is to choose the best. And now this is crystal clear throughout this book, and it talks about Jesus Christ, that he is better. He is better than anything else, is what the book constantly focuses on. The word better is the key word to the entire book of Hebrews to these people living in this big city. It says that Jesus is better than angels, that he offers a better hope, a better covenant, a better promise, and a better future. Jesus Christ is presented as our ultimate answer for all of our needs and all of our fulfillment in life, like not feeling empty, but finding spiritual fulfillment and finding fulfillment in this life. Jesus Christ is presented to us in this way. They were battling some of the same things, extraordinary. They were battling some of the exact same things that you and I battle in this city. In the city they lived in, they were battling some of those exact same problems that we face. They were very busy. We are very busy in this city. They had jam-packed schedules. They were ambitious, and there's a lot of ambition in this city. That was going on for them, too. They were human beings given to weakness just like we are, tempted in the same ways that we were, led astray by those things. Our city offers so much, much of it very, very good. But if we are not careful, if we are not careful about what we choose, we might choose something that is less than best. And that is the message of the book of Hebrews. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just pray, God, that uh, you'd be with us this morning. Help us to learn something here today from your word, uh, very pertinent to us, written to a group of people living in a big city. And here we are in this big city facing many of the distractions and temptations that they did. God, help us to to find genuine fulfillment and purpose and meaning in life through the words in the scripture here today. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1, let's read the first three verses. This is what it says. It says, in the past, God spoke. He spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You notice how it begins. It says it this way, very clearly, God spoke, God spoke. Idea is this. Are human beings capable of reaching beyond our natural realm and gaining information about the divine? Who initiates 
this relationship? Who initiates the information about God? Do we initiate it? Many times people say, well, religion is just people who are coming up with some system or some idea or some thoughts about God, right? And so that is often said. But in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, we get a completely different picture of that. The starting point is critical. It's a critical starting point. And what we're told repeatedly in the Scriptures is humanity, men and women, did not sit around and think up the God that we have before us here in the Bible. They did not come up with the ideas, the information, the structure, or the system that God is the initiator of all of that, and God is the pursuer, so God spoke. And so God communicated information, so it all begins with God. It does not begin with us. And this is clear all the way again. Adam and Eve in the garden, God is the initiator. Abraham and Sarah, God is the initiator. Mary and Joseph, God is the initiator. Jesus Christ walks this earth. They say, hey man, why are you here? He says, I've come to seek you out. I've come here to pursue you. Who is the pursuer? Who is the initiator of the information and the relationship? It's God. And this is exactly what the scripture is communicating to us. It does not happen the other way around. It does not happen because we sit around and we think up who God is and come up with our own system or idea and we paint the picture. God is not created in our image in the Bible. We are created in the image of God. That understanding to this as we begin Hebrews is so very critical. Where is our starting point? And the starting point is that God, God spoke. He spoke, and they were told that God spoke in many different ways. He says He spoke in various ways. What's that talking about? It's talking about the prophets and the Old Testament, all the books of the Old Testament. Some 40 different authors in the Old Testament inspired by God speak. Over a period of 1,500 years, 1,500 years, 40 different authors write over that long period of time. And their theme is completely consistent even though it extends 1,500 years. All of them are pointing in the exact same direction. They're pointing to a redeemer. They're pointing to a cosmic buyback plan of this planet. That's what they're focused on. Somebody is going to come, and they're going to buy this whole thing back. Who is going to do that? Isaiah tells us that the Redeemer will be born of a virgin, and he tells us that hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born. The Redeemer will be born of a virgin. Well, that's very odd, isn't it? I haven't heard of that happening much. And then Micah comes along and says, you know what? The Redeemer, the one who's going to buy all this back, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And later Daniel comes along. And Daniel gives us an actual timeline, which is fascinating. We ever wonder why we're getting ready to hit Christmas? We're going to talk about the wise men, right? We're going to sing about the three wise men or whatever the song that we sing. And, you know, actually, we, there weren't three wise men. There could have been a whole troop of them. We only say three because there was three gifts that was presented here. But there's no scriptural validity to there being three. But there was a group of wise men, and they show up for the birth of Christ because they saw this star. Why? Why? I mean, where they're hanging, these guys are from Babylon, Iraq, modern day Iraq. Well, I mean, what, what, what prompted them to come? 500 years prior to that, Daniel was in charge. He was the leader of all the wise men of Babylon. And he painted for them a timeline and says, you know what? When you get to this time frame, when you get this time frame, here's the number of years. Start looking. The Messiah is going to show up. And then he says in A.D. 33, the king is going to show up in Jerusalem. A.D. He gets specific, everybody. A.D. 33, the king is going to show up in Jerusalem and he's going to be coronated king. And in A.D. 33, Jesus Christ walked down the hill into Jerusalem and people laid palm branches down on the ground and they hailed him, King of kings and Lord of lords, Hosanna in the highest. Is that fascinating or what? In many ways, 
God spoke. And all of it culminates in Jesus Christ is the picture that is being painted for us here in the scriptures. So who is Jesus Christ? If you're looking there at Hebrews chapter 1, let's just go through these verses if we can real quick and outline who Jesus Christ is. This is what it says about him. It says, Jesus is the beginning of all things. He is the creator. Jesus began all things. He created all things. We get that picture over and over again in the scriptures. That Jesus Christ created us. That means he created you and he created me and he created this planet. He created this universe. Jesus Christ created all things. He's the beginning of all things. It says next that Jesus Christ is the middle of all things, which means he's the sustainer. Jesus Christ sustains all things. And it says he holds and sustains all things by what? By his word. By his word. That he holds all things together by his powerful word. And isn't it interesting that when our lives are falling apart, that we can go to the time-tested truths and principles of the Bible, and then it pulls our life back together. And so we're told that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all things. And then finally, it says this about Jesus. Who is he? It says that Jesus Christ is the end of all things. He is the end. He's the beginning. He's the middle. He's the end because he's the heir. He's the heir of all things. He owns all things. Let me say one other thing, because then I really want to get into the fact that Jesus Christ is the heir. He has inherited all things, and he has authority over all things. Because it says here in the scripture, in verse number 3 of Hebrews, says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This was written, obviously, by the name of this book the book of Hebrews, it was written to a group of Jewish people, followers of Jesus Christ, living in a big city, okay? So what was so important? What was more important than anything else to the Jewish people 2,000 years ago? It was their temple, because the temple was the representation of God on earth. When Moses was in the desert, it was the tabernacle, because that is where God met with them. They said a glory cloud, which was the presence of God, would come and rest upon the tabernacle, and Moses would go in and talk to God face to face, and he'd come out and his face was shining. And then when the temple was built, it was the temple. It was in the temple where the Holy of Holies was, and behind this huge curtain that was a foot thick, thick curtain, behind this curtain was the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. And the temple was seen as the place where heaven intersects earth, where we look, we look at a physical thing and we say, ah, there, there is where God is. Tangible. It's, it's, it's physical. It's something we can see. And here we're told in these verses here that Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory, just like the temple radiated God's glory. And he is the exact representation of God now. What is it saying? Something better than the temple has come. Something better. Isn't it interesting after Jesus is coronated king and he dies on the cross that shortly after the temple is destroyed and has never been rebuilt again to this day? And isn't it interesting in Revelation chapter 21 that John looks into heaven and he said, I saw a new heaven and new earth, but there was no temple anymore. It did not exist because now Jesus Christ is our temple. Jesus Christ is the physical representation of God, the exact radiance of God's glory. This is what the book of Hebrews lifts up about Jesus Christ. Better, better, better. He is the best. He is the ultimate answer from God. The ultimate answer from God. Now, he is the heir of all things. So, here's the last fill in the blank. Jesus owns it all. And he owns it all. He owns it all. He owns us. He owns you. He owns me. He owns 
this universe. When I was uh, in college, uh, I was married, very young, and I was hanging out with a friend of mine one day, him and his wife. He's also a married college student. And his wife, his wife said, she said, um, something like this. She said, you know, and his name was Mike. She says, Mike, I am just all his. Like, he owns me. And I thought, oh, wow. That's that she just like fully, fully is just given, you know, just you're all mine. And I said, that's awesome. And I went home and I told my young wife, I said, baby, I own you. And she said, what did you say? That didn't, that didn't go over very well. So uh, it wasn't the romantic idea that I had in mind when I said that. So it took, uh, it's taken decades to get past that point. But anyway, Jesus Christ, you know, he owns it all. He is the inheritor. Let's go through some verses here. Psalm chapter 2 says, ask of me. This is a messianic psalm. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. So saying Jesus is going to inherit everything. All right. Psalm 89. Again, another messianic psalm. I will appoint him the firstborn. Speaking of Jesus Christ, firstborn. Colossians chapter 1 says that. The firstborn, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him. And check this out, for him. Everything was created for Jesus Christ. Firstborn of all creation. The Jehovah's Witnesses came to visit me about 15 years ago in my house. And... Admittedly, I don't know much about what they believe, but we had we had a very interesting interchange. And I remember they turned to this verse specifically. They said, look right here. It says Jesus Christ is the firstborn, which means he is not God because he was created. God is not created. He's the firstborn. He's the firstborn son of God. He is created. He's not born. And I said, wow. Uh, well, so much of the Bible speaks opposite to that. I mean, you've got this one verse. Yeah, but that one verse is there. What does it mean? And I said, well, you know, it's not saying what you're saying it is because there's so many other verses. What I did not know then is what I'm about ready to tell you now, 2,000 years ago. This is why it's so important. We cannot read the Bible out of context. We've got to go back into the history, and we've got to figure out what was being said in those days because 2,000 years from this point right now, we're going to talk in a way, and if somebody's trying to interpret us, they're going to have no clue what we mean unless we understand where we are. So where are they and then? What does firstborn mean 2,000 years ago? It's not a chronological term. It's a legal term. It's a legal term. It speaks to inheritance and authority. Inheritance and authority. Jesus Christ has inherited and has authority over all creation. That's all these verses are saying, which is a lot. He's inherited. It's not chronological. And that's why we read in Philippians chapter 2, there is coming a day when every knee, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It says in Philippians 2, therefore God exalted him, speaking of Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because he owns it all. However, let's say this really clear. This is really important. Though Jesus Christ owns it all, has authority over it all, has inherited all, he has not taken possession of it yet. He has not. There is a squatter on this planet. Are we familiar with squatter's rights? There's a squatter on this planet. It's the devil. And at this point, the Bible tells us clearly the devil is in control of what's going on here. And there's this massive battle, but there is coming a day. So 
uh, this past week, what I simply did is I Googled religion. I wanted to see what it pulled up, and, man, it pulled up all kinds of stuff. And one of the things it pulled up was a YouTube clip of George Carlin. Is everybody familiar with George Carlin talking about religion? I can't tell you all the things he said because every other word was a cuss word, but he was railing against the fact of this. Isn't this fascinating? He says, you know what? This whole God thing, he said basically that religion and God and the Bible was the biggest scam that has ever, ever existed. But though it's obvious from his comments that this guy had spent some time in church somewhere at some place and was probably extremely burned by church at somewhere at some place, right? That becomes clear, not that you have to go and watch the clip, but let me tell you a little bit about what he said. He said this. He says, you know what? If, if God is in charge of all this, if God has created all of this, if this is all of God, this is God, this is what God has done, well, then who cares about God? Because this, this planet is filled with so much injustice and so much pain and so much suffering and so much that is wrong. So if this is what God has created, I don't want any part of God. This should not go on the resume of the Almighty. What this should go on is the resume of a bad office temp with a terrible attitude. That makes more sense to me. And what somebody simply need to share with George Carlin is what the Bible simply teaches us about the ownership of this planet, that there's a squatter ever since Adam and Eve in the garden and the rejection of God Almighty. The scripture is clear, start to finish, start to finish, Genesis to Revelation. There's a squatter, and he's controlling this planet and holding sway over what happens here. But there will come a day, Revelation chapter 5, there will come a day. And the scene that we have in Revelation chapter 5 is God the Father Almighty. He's sitting on his throne. And John, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus Christ, he is having this vision. God is showing them vision of things that are happening in the future. And here is Almighty God the Father. And he's sitting on the throne. And he's holding something in his hand. He's holding a scroll. And it's sealed seven times. What is the significance of the seven seals upon that? That in New Testament times, in Roman times, you would seal something seven times if it was an important legal document. And in this case, it's the title deed to the universe. It's the title deed to the entire universe. And he's sitting on his throne and he's holding this scroll sealed seven times, the title deed to this universe. And an angel cries out and says, Who is worthy? to break the seven seals and to open this. And nobody steps forward, and then eventually Jesus Christ does. And he comes forward, and Almighty God, the Father, hands to Jesus Christ the scroll. And then we're told this. Jesus begins to unroll it. And what they would do in Roman times is when they had a document of that importance, they would roll it. And every revolution of the roll, they would seal it again. And they'd roll it and seal it again and roll it and seal it again. And eventually, it was rolled seven times and sealed seven times for permanence. And so we're told in Revelation chapter 6 that Jesus Christ begins to unroll the scroll. And every time he breaks a seal, there's this huge battle, hellacious battle that goes on. Because Jesus Christ begins to slowly, progressively take possession of what is rightfully his and the devil doesn't like it and so there's this huge battle going on and yes there's injustice and there's pain and there's suffering and it's not god's will because god's will is that one day he will break all those seals according to the bible one by one by one till he gets to the seventh one and then he'll clean up the corruption and he'll clean up the pollution and he'll clean up the injustice and he'll clean up the suffering and the pain. That is the message of the Bible, my friends. And a lot of times we get that completely wrong. Sometimes followers of Christ do and we tell other people, whoa, God's in charge. He's in control. And people like George Carlin hear that and they say, really? Well, if this is his control, if this is his house, I want nothing to do with it because this world is screwed up. And he doesn't use that word. He uses a different word. 
Eventually in Revelation chapter 11, once he has unrolled the scroll completely, we are told that heaven, there is a loud, loud trumpet blast. And then the voices are raised in heaven. And this is what they say now, Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now it's become. It's become now that the scroll has been unrolled and the seven seals have been broken and he's taken possession and he's thrown out the squatter and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever and ever. This world is not the way God designed it to be and is now today not functioning the way he wants it to be. When he takes possession of what he owns, when he comes back, and Jesus told a parable about this in the book of Matthew, when he comes back to take possession, then one day we'll get to see it. And we will know when that happens. It won't be like, did we miss it? We will absolutely know when it happens. What does that mean to us? Romans chapter 8 says this. What does it mean that Jesus Christ has authority? What does it mean that he owns it all, that he is the heir? This is what it says about us. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8 says this. If we humbly follow after him, we are told this. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Joint heirs. What does that mean to us that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ? Is it not great to have really, really rich family and friends? Does anybody have like a really rich family member or friend? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. I I have the privilege of having some friends uh, who are really wealthy. They have a lot of money. And I got to tell you, man, that's pretty cool. You know, when you get to go and use their houses, their beach houses, and their lake houses, and their boats, like, you don't ever want to own a boat for yourself. You just got to have a friend that has a boat. Because, they, you know what I'm saying? They do all the work. They maintain these properties. Who wants to own a lot of... You know what? That's just more stress, owning all these properties and things. It's... My life is stressful enough. I don't want to own anything else. I just want to know people that own it. And, and, and then if they're, you know, we have some family and friends that, like, they don't share that stuff. Who cares about them? Get rid of them. What we want is we want rich people. We want rich people to be family and friends of us who freely share it, you know. Like, yes, please, please go. You know, it's such a wonderful, wonderful thing. I had a friend of mine and very wealthy guy. And uh, tickets to the Redskin game. He's giving me tickets to the Redskin game. His personal assistant uh, called me up one day and says, Hey, got some tickets to the Redskin game. You want to take your son? Well, my son is, man, he just loves sports. And so I said, Okay, so send the, you know, send the tickets over. And I guess I was too busy. I wasn't listening clearly enough. And they said, We're going to send these tickets over. You know, and, and there's another group of tickets in there. And that's just what I thought I heard them say. And we have a room, like the company that my friend owns. We have this room, and it has some food in it and, and a TV. And that was what was in my mind. Okay. So we go to the stadium, and we go to these, these tickets, and they're the obstructed view tickets. Okay? An obstructed view at Redskins Stadium, right? Is it still called FedEx Field, right? At Redskins. So it's very, like, you can't see the entire field. And it's very loud. And though the game had just kicked off, like, People supposedly, it was a big party going on in there. It was because you were trapped. All the noise was trapped. It was as loud as can be. And people had party. 
they just so much drinking, just having a great time drinking and falling down already. I mean, we're 60 seconds into the game and they're, they're having so much fun, you know, and just yelling and screaming and fighting, but so much fun going on right there. And it was just unbelievable. And we're sitting there, both Jonathan and I, we're trying to look at the field because you can't see. And uh, we got about two minutes into it. And my son looks at me and says, let's go, let's go. I said, are you serious? This is terrible. (laughs) I mean, he was so excited about going, let's go. So I said, all right, let's take off. So I said, before we leave, why don't we just go and at least let's get something to eat at that room somewhere. I'm thinking, let's find this room. So I take these tickets and I go to an usher. I said, where do I find this room? And they pointed me to the elevator. It wasn't a room. It was a suite. It was a suite upstairs with this awesome view of the field with leather couches and a big TV and you sat right there and you got to see everything and it was all you can eat food and a private bathroom and everything you wanted was right there and this big suite and there was about eight people in there. The whole time we were holding the ticket to this incredible suite and we were sitting down in these stupid obstructed view where everybody was having so much fun, right? You know what? Isn't that how it is in our lives a lot of times, everybody, when it comes to God? Our city offers us so much, so much to do, not all of it bad. And we want so badly to move ahead. We're ambitious. It offers us, you know, if you do this, if you just party enough, you're going to find fulfillment, right? If you just do enough, you're going to, if you just push your head, I mean, you can find fulfillment by your kids doing better, like get them in the best schools and get them in the sports. And so we cram their schedules full of stuff because we're going to find fulfillment. You're going to find fulfillment when you get a husband. You're going to find fulfillment when you get a wife. You're going to find fulfillment when you get a promotion. You're going to find fulfillment when you make your first million bucks. You're going to find fulfillment when you party all night long. And then when we're fine, when we do all that stuff, we do it. We realize we're completely empty. That for some reason, those things that everybody is around us in the obstructed view seats are like, hey, we're having such a great time. Going to wake up throwing up all night long and tomorrow morning going to feel like crap, right? But man, we're having a good time. This is how you find fulfillment. And the whole time, Jesus Christ is offering us a different ticket. He is the creator. He created us so he knows what we need. Like whoever created my car said that car should run on gasoline, not ketchup. So God creates us, this is how you should function. And so in the big city, when we're distracted and we really aren't spending that time with God, like they were falling away from God, they were drifting. They weren't finding, they thought they were finding fulfillment, but they just kept moving farther and farther away from fulfillment. Jesus Christ is the creator, the sustainer, and he's the heir of all things, which means he has authority. What does that mean? It means he calls the shots. Does Jesus Christ call the shots in your life? What shot is Jesus Christ calling in your life right now today? I find in my own life that Jesus Christ, on a regular basis, is calling some kind of shot. He's like, okay, this, I need you to think about this. You need to change this. This needs to What shot is Jesus Christ calling in your life right now today? I want to encourage you to respond to that because that, according to the book of Hebrews, is the only way to find genuine, real fulfillment to get out of the obstructed view seats and up to the suite because he owns it all let's pray heavenly father i just thank you so much for your word it's just awesome uh god you know that we are distracted and pulled away by a lot of stuff in this world and a lot of it's good it's good some of it's bad but a lot of it's good 
God, you created us and you love us so much and all you want is our best. And so you encourage us to choose the best, which is you, Jesus Christ. So all over this room, God, I pray that you would help us to choose the best. For those right now who are trying to make a decision about choosing to have faith and accepting you, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, help them to make the right choice right now. For those of us who have a really packed schedule and something needs to change, or for those of us who are allowing something that we think is going to bring us fulfillment and, and leaving us empty, help us to stop choosing that. Help us to stop choosing that and instead choose what's going to bring us real fulfillment, time-tested fulfillment. Because, God, you are the authority. Jesus Christ, it's all yours. Help us, God. We need your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. As the, before the band gets ready to play, I just want to remind you our prayer team is always over here. If you want to pray about something, or you can always see Derek or myself. God bless.